Welcome to the Rights of Others. Today, we are very excited to have with us Jalen and Delara. Uh, Jalen and Delara are one of the reasons why this podcast started, uh, because it's, uh, it, they inspired me. My students generally inspired me, but uh, in particularly these two uh, women, as uh, Rasa has uh, already described them, Uh, before uh, we came on air, these two beautiful human beings have actually been a, a real inspiration for uh, myself and, uh, and then for us and Seema as well to get us working uh, in the podcast, The Rise of Others. So um, Jalen and Delara are two recent graduates of the um, law um, in uh, the University of Greenwich. They have, I've had the privilege of having them as my students in Um, international human rights law module. Um, while they have been in their third year of uh, law school, they have uh, worked uh, in the Amnesty International Student Society. They've actually led the Amnesty International Student Society and they have been very active in the University of Greenwich ECHO team. They uh, both uh, have volunteered uh, previously with the Syrian Work Victims Association and we, we are really um, excited to hear about their work there. Um, both uh, Jalen and Delara are, are pure Londoners, which is something that is uh, not very uh, common, at least in, in, uh, among my friends, because we're all probably coming from abroad. Um, but uh, there, it's very good to see people who actually were born in London, and they're both from uh, a Kurdish background. So um, welcome, uh, Jalen, and welcome, Delara. Thank you. Hi, Olga. Thank you for inviting us and thank you for the welcome. It was so cute introduction. Fantastic. It's, um, it is really great to have you here. And, and uh, as I said, you know, well, both Seema, uh, Rasa and I have always been thinking of you and, and your work uh, and your classmates when, we, when we're making our podcast. So the first thing that I would like to start with is to ask you about your work, uh, your work at Amnesty International and the ECHO team while you've been at uh, Greenwich and what, uh, what have you done, what motivated you to actually um, join and take over the, the organization of the group and the association that we have to say you won a prize for this the well the association won a prize and uh, tell us a little bit more about about this work and what it means to you um well it was actually during my summer break of 2019 we've been members of um amnesty international society from like the first year of university but um and we saw the work of fatima zara who was running it before and she did amazing work and she's still doing amazing things within the human rights industry Um, the second year, the society died down a bit and we weren't happy about it. So, like I wasn't quite happy about it. And I just thought instead of it dying, we might sort of take control and just like regenerate the society. And I thought, why not have my closest friends who are also very passionate about the same cause? Why not come together and run it? Uh, so that's how it started off. And then... Um, We wanted it to be, we didn't want it to be a society where it's like, okay, we're the leaders, everyone else has to follow what we say. We were like, okay, let's ask our um, peers and our members what they'd like to focus on. And the main issues were um, the climate crisis and um, Brave, which is a campaign on human rights defenders who are currently um, either missing, um, uh, imprisoned, or have been tortured and murdered. Um, so we decided to focus on the climate crisis, which we've been focusing on and actively campaigning on throughout the year. Our main goal was to um, get the university to declare a climate crisis. So Jalen, tell us a little bit about the, the work um, you were doing at Amnesty. Yeah, so um, our purpose was to get the university to declare a climate emergency and um, we got together with Eco Team Greenwich um, and they were, their purpose was to also get students and staff to come together, discuss the issues on um, the climate emergency um, and then we decided to um, 
so we had like a mind map in um, the meeting where we were all discussing what can we do this year and um, we decided that we could do a clove swap project and so we were like what can we do to make it different and how we can get the students to be um, students to engage in this and we decided that um, the clove swap would be the best way to uh, get students because they would it would be more convenient for them as well and the purpose of the clove shop was to promote sustainable fashion and um, this way they wouldn't be consuming um, further resources so tell what is a clove shop uh, the clove shop is so what we did was we were collecting clothes from students and with every item of clothing they gave us, uh, we would give them marbles in exchange and the marbles represent the earth. Um, and what we would do is um, we had like, we collected around 10 bin bags of clothes uh, throughout the year. And um, what we did was we collected and then we um, arranged a clothes swap at the Dreadnought Students' Union building at the Greenwich, University of Greenwich. Um, and students were very interested. It was um, it was a very big event. A lot of people swapped clothes, um, and we got in contact with a lot of people uh, on social media um, who also took part in the clothes swapping. And then uh, we also repeated this clothes swap at the Royal Society of Arts, where we arranged an event um, called um, Human Rights in the World of Fashion and Textiles where Olga and Seema also uh, spoke, had a guest. Um, they spoke about the corporate accountability and the abuses of human rights abuses. Great. Um, yeah, Dilara, are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. No worries. Okay, so, um, yeah, Jalen has told us about how you decided to, to, what to focus on and uh, the work that you did at the clothes swap. And, um, yeah, I wanted to do a follow-up question um, with regards to that, and then may and maybe, Dilara, you can answer that. Uh, so... It seems that one of the one of the objectives of your clothes swap was to not only the activity of uh, you know getting the clothes and exchanging etc., but it was raise awareness to your to your uh, people at the same uh, at the university, your fellow students. How, what did you find? Uh, what do you find of your um, fellow students, the people of your generation, that you are um, uh, your peers? How conscious are they of what, uh, why you were doing that? Uh, what are their own awareness and understanding of human rights, or the, or the, in that case as well, what you've been working on the climate emergency? Um, how was it to to have those kind of conversations with your peers? It was a bit challenging at first. Sorry. Uh, it was a bit challenging at first because social media at the moment plays a critical role in the rise of thrifting. Um, so a lot of people are just like showcasing like thrift shopping finds and um, looking at secondhand clothing. But our um, aim was to like introduce that this, the reason why we're promoting sustainable fashion is because 60% of all the clothes produced are not even worn. And um, we need to show them that um, they need to look at whether it's fair trade or whether they actually need this many clothes. And the issue of workers' safety when uh, these clothes are being produced, that's what we need to educate them on. Mm -hmm. And Dilara, did you find that people were responsive to that? Um, at first, I think some most students, they didn't think of the climate crisis as a human rights issue it was more of like a scientific and like political issue and then but once we started discussing about how um the effects of the climate crisis affect um poorer countries i don't like that word but countries um yeah i guess i'll go with that then um countries and um, countries with um yeah, poorer countries, they were affected the most, especially within the, from the human rights and um, fashion industry, where a lot of, well, producing one garment costs 
one human rights through modern slavery and just like the consumption of energy and chemicals and gases it was so it was it was something new a new concept to people but once we started speaking about it and having a dialogue both like an open dialogue people were responsive and they wanted to get involved and they wanted to educate themselves more so um we were just like educating people and showing them the right platforms to find out more information and I think that was our main aim with the Schwab. We wanted it to be a positive event as opposed to like, oh my God, we've got climate crisis. You need to stop using plastic bags. Enough, no more plastic bags, reusable cups. It was more of, this is a problem. These are some of the things you can do. And I think it was shining light on one of the biggest issues. Um, that is the human um, fashion and textiles industry. That's great. I guess you you yourself learned a lot as well in the process, no? Because Definitely. that has yeah. happened to me as well when when I started uh, looking into the you know the bit of the fashion industry. Um, I know a lot about uh, um, supply chain, but wasn't really as conscious of what I was wearing myself. And um, I know um, Seema would also like to to jump in in this. Yeah, thank you so much. I think it's uh, fashion is such an interesting um, approach to coming to the climate crisis. Uh, my question for you is, um, you know, I remember having a conversation with my with my mother-in-law, and I'm 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 going to say a few decades older than you, but I remember having a conversation with my mother-in-law. You know, who was saying, you know, talking about, of course, when she was growing up in the UK, you know, in her generation, you know, if you had one sweater, you wore your sweater for, you know, until it didn't fit you, until you were basically, uh, you know, you had to stretch it. And, you know, and when you were finished with it, your, your brother, your sister would wear it. You know, this whole idea, you know, she was expressing to me that, you know, it's, there's so much waste in the current fashion sort of perception and generation. And, and there was a time when, when clothes were made, they were made to last, uh, and you didn't really need that many clothes. So, so the, how much, the perception of how much clothing you needed was, was much lower. And I had a conversation with, you know, sort of switching angles. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who works in the fashion industry right now. She's actually um, works as a supplier for, fast, for factories. So she's very well informed you know, on how the mechanics of the industry work. Um, and she said to me, um, which is a question I want to put to you, because I was saying, you know, but there should be more sustainable fashion. You know, we should challenge the business model. The business model, you know, is producing volumes, keep the price low. It's volumes, volumes, price low. And, but of course, there's a massive environmental, negative environmental impact from that. So I was saying, you know, we need to challenge the business model, you know, of how, of how consumers, young people, fashionable young people today um, see fashion. And she kind of responded that, I don't think it's gonna work, Seema. I think young people have a very different relationship with their clothing, that when they buy a dress, for example, they have no intention of wearing it six times to the different events, but maybe once or twice. So I wanted to ask you what your feelings were on that. You know, if there is in fact this uh, perception or culture amongst um, you know, I want to say not young people, but like kind of the 20 something, 30, early 30 something generation, you know, of, of, you know, I'm, you know, the intention is to wear something that looks good in and then not to use it again. How do you approach that? You know, what do you think about that? And particularly with the objectives that you're, the challenge that you've raised, you know, for, um, for the others at University Branch. Um, I think what's changed from your mother-in-law's generation to our generation is that we use fashion as an identity. So what we wear or the way we style it, it's a reflection of our identity. But I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't say that um, we only wear an item once or twice. There is a pressure from social media. I feel like social media has a huge impact on the fashion industry with influencers who were. Um, advertising these pretty like fast fashion companies who they're being paid for um so they they do have an effect there is this notion that oh you can only wear one outfit once like if you've taken a picture with that outfit you can't wear it again and i think that's a notion that we need to get rid of and it's it's not something that comes to us but it's something that's kind of influenced onto us by social media it's like this notion that 
you can't wear an item more than once. But I, in my daily life, I don't agree with that. And I don't think my friends do either. Um, I think what the issue is, fast fashion is very cheap. And now it's, it's so whereas before a pair of jeans must have cost 50 pounds, I would worn it till like it was worn out, completely worn out, ripped. And then, or you pass it down to someone else. Now it's um, much cheaper. So there's a larger consumption, like the manufacturing, there's tons more now. And the people who consume it, they just, like, whereas if you had two pairs of jeans, a jumper and a top, now you have like variety because it's so much cheaper. People think that's the norm. Whereas that shouldn't be the case. A pair of jeans shouldn't cost that little. And I think because it costs so little, people want to buy more and they think it's cost effective. Whereas in the long term, these are low quality products who have cost people's lives and it's costing our lives to this day. Do, do, that's so interesting. Do you have any ideas of how, I guess, the business model, you know, could be challenged? You know, I agree completely with what you're saying. I mean, are, are you discussing, you know, in, in the group? And I mean, what if, this is a failure of corporate responsibility in a way, right? Because as, as you highlighted, you produce a cheap item, you sell it for cheap. It's not completely clear who is making the margin or the profits even within the chain itself because of the lack of transparency generally, I think, around these issues. But we all know that sort of conditions for workers and factories, you know, and many of them are, you know, the wages, the health conditions, the, there are massive issues in this area. So what, what do you think or what does the group talk about in terms of like challenging the business model itself? Um, so you've mentioned changing perceptions and sort of the, you know, sort of the, the clothing, like how you, yeah, you perceive the clothing, but what are your thoughts in relation to I feel like the company? with com companies now, they've got this greenwashing um, things going on with like Behu or Zara who say, oh, this was sustainably made or they've got advertisements that make it seem like it's sustainable. Whereas um, now through social, so social media can be good or bad depending on how you use it. So on one hand, you have influencers who are um, mass advertising, like constant bombardment of advertising, influencing of these cheap items. And um, on the other hand, you have um, social media accounts like Oh So Ethical, who are bringing to light the, um, the effects and damages and the stuff that's actually going on behind the advertisements and behind the greenwashing and behind these green labels and that um, what's really going on. And I feel like there is a big... Uh, discussion now people are more aware of it and I feel like people well me and my friends we try to shop less from um, fast fashion companies and shop more from um, secondhand stores or buy a pair of jeans that might cost more but the quality is better so they're going to last me much longer so I feel like fast fashion companies need to change the mindset that more is better that's not the case like we need to stop being there's like every season there's a new pair of outfits like there's a new style um rather than bringing in more clothes at cheaper cost they need to think about the quality of their products and start from there because if they produce better quality products people um would be less likely to buy more clothes i see guess um, also, I just want to add, um, it's very difficult to find the fashion brands accountable because um, they don't touch the production directly. So instead, because they outsource the production to supplier firms, um, they're not affiliated or, or um, authorised, so they carry no legal obligations. So then we can't find the, brand, um, the fashion brands um, accountable for making those products. So um, there's just one thing which I uh, just came in my mind when you two were talking about the price, which is that it, it's interesting that they say it's cheaper, you know, it's it's cheaper, the products, what we, what we are uh, sold. But um, the price is actually paid, of course, somewhere else, like the cotton crops and people who are farmers who are doing suicide and uh, pesticides being used or chemicals being disposed. And it is interesting that um, we are actually paying the price, extra price sometimes for these cheap clothes. But another uh, vision is that because uh, there is no proper economic development going on, 
the prices comes down and it feels like that we can afford more as if like we have more purchasing power but that's not actually the case it's 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 yes now you can afford more clothes uh, but it's it's a it's like an interesting dynamic of how the system is kind of squeezing its itself onto certain uh, part of the society, and and we feel that oh yes the purchasing power have gone up. Actually, we are paying more from other part of our society, and what what cheap clothes we kind of get is another illusion, which is like oh yeah I can buy more clothes and like I can you know I can afford a bit, bit more. So it's it's interesting that I yeah you're right that perception is a very important thing now that if we can you know see those cheap products to be double uh, kind of double edged sword where it damages the society and actually gives you an illusion that you are doing great because you can buy like now ten pairs of whatever yeah i have um i remember um reading i can't i can't remember exactly who wrote it now but um we have there's the illusion because we can uh buy we can afford more clothes more cheap clothes we can afford more cheap food we can afford more cheap everything more cheap toys more cheap uh, you know plastic stuff that disintegrates within the first use we we believe we have got increased our our you know status or our um going to kind of more economically um better economically but actually we've lost in we cannot afford to buy a house we cannot afford to have a pension we cannot uh, our, the state doesn't afford to pay good education we can't afford good medical care etc so we are substituting it's a way to keep us entertained uh, thinking that we can afford more uh, that we are better off when we're actually you know destroying our environment or destroying our own capacity to breathe uh, uh, good air so yeah i think that's that's an important point so I have actually a question for both of you, which is you mentioned social media. So I think at this point, um, one of the biggest, other than our pandemic, one of the biggest problems I have found is the social overwhelm, which uh, our new generation is facing. And I think what you are doing, it's really undervalued. It's not really told that helping others this is the Buddhist saying, which says that uh, tend to the part of garden which you can touch. And this is what whatever your capacity is. So you're like helping in this interesting, beautiful way. And I think I found that anyone who is in this era where there's a, I would say, like information overflow, really, which is flushing everything of who we are and we don't know how to handle it. This kind of small act, how you are, you know, dealing with, you see something in your environment, you're trying to help. How much is it helping you to somehow go through or against that kind of a social overwhelm or that kind of a flood, which is these days one of the biggest pandemics for our new generation? Um, I think that... I think what we have in the 21st century is a mass consumption of everything. Everything is just like heightened and elevated. So even with like clothing, there's a mass consumption of that and production of that. And with social media, it's quite overwhelming. And what I see more in my peers and myself is that we have to take a break from it every now and then because you can't filter out what you're seeing, even with like fake news. Now um, you have like on Twitter, um, if it's a news agency, they say um, China state affiliated agency. So now we have some, we're finding out about fake news, but there's, we need to stop taking in everything we see and sometimes just think about it. Like think about what we're reading. What's the intention behind this? What's the intention of sharing this? What is the message that they're trying to get across? And um, just stop being from overwhelmed. I think we need to take it bit by bit and focus on what connects to me or like what I relate to. And if it's something that I know I can do, it might be challenging, but if I can do it, then I would try and do that. Um, Cause otherwise, um, not depressed, but you can, you can feel very low and you can feel um, helpless 
knowing that there's so much going on in the world and we're constantly being bombarded with this every single day with child trafficking, the Syrian conflict, the Black Lives Matter. Um, there's just too much pain in the world and I feel like we have to take it bit by bit, have conversations on this within family, within friends, within colleagues, and then talk about what we can do about it within our community. Also, I feel like uh, we remind ourselves that we're activists and that we're like educating people on this. And the more we find out about it, the more we tell people about it and the more uh, knowledge we gain, the more knowledge we give to other people. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, so so do you think that, you know, slowly how you are um, kind of uh, step by step working about rights of others that's what we are talking about or any other kind of activity even clothes swap sustainability how do you i mean i i why i'm asking it is that it might be useful to know um, that there is an actual impact on an individual's life when you simply help someone else even though you have been targeted uh, by this insane mass pain which of course sells a lot, and that's why it's in social media. Uh, but again, it's is is it helpful in any way, or or am I just you know thinking about it a little too much in one direction? I think it would only be helpful if we can stop just consuming. If we're just consuming, then that's damaging to both like our well-being and our mental health. But if we can consume it and then have discussions about what is happening here what's really going on here and then talking about like what we can do so just brainstorming about what you can do maybe not like maybe you can write to your mp maybe you can lobby your mp maybe you can speak to your university to talk about it bringing in a campaign on it um i think right now knowledge is power but that knowledge we have to make sure that it's correct and um that we can rely on it and um, once we consume something we need to be careful about how we deal with it subconsciously i think covid kind of has a positive impact on people taking in knowledge as well because uh, recently like everyone has been like uh, publishing more um things on what's going on around the world and they're taking in information but the only problem is they're only doing it when it's trending and what we need them to do is not just talk about it when it's trending, but to also um, do more about it. Okay, so um, I would like to pick up on something that you just said. Um, uh, it was Jalen who used the word uh, in particular, but uh, both of you, uh, I think, uh, probably um, come from uh, at the same from the same perspective. But Jalen, you said we are activists. And this is a very important uh, um, word for us in this podcast because uh, we discuss a lot, uh, uh, Seema, Rasa and I, of whether we are activists or, or not. And uh, we have uh, different perspectives and, and uh, we you know, consider each other activists and probably not ourselves. So do you consider yourself activist and, and why? What is an activist for you? Um, maybe, Jalen, you can start us. As you use this word first. Yeah, um, I do consider myself an activist. I can. I do consider you as an activist too. Um, I think whoever is, um, you know, uh, educating themselves on the different human rights abuses and trying to educate other people on what is going on and doing things about it is an activist. Well, what do you think? Um. I think usually when I was younger, I thought an activist, you're an activist if you go to protests. But now yeah. I know that you can be an activist just from sitting at home and like writing Signing a MP, petition. Signing a petition, sharing that petition, and um, creating group chats to say, let's do this campaign or um, just talking about it. So yes, like I think education is very important for both me and Jay. And um, sharing that knowledge once that we've, like sharing the knowledge that we've gained and think, thinking actively, thinking, okay, this is the problem here. What can we do about it? And then it's like, if we can't do anything, can someone else do something? And just acting on that, activating 
ourselves to be able to alleviate the um alleviate the issues that have come from like politicians and people who are in power but we're the ones that are actually suffering from it very good very interesting well i might have to start calling myself an activist here maybe see why you you have convinced oh yeah i said you're an activist you know (laughs) whether you like it or not i mean it's it's a person who brings change no like positive questions the status quo seeks positive change you know in relation to human rights you're doing that from your classroom Definitely. Right. Well, I'll, I'll change my bio then. <laughs> I think so, I want to yeah, say, Delara, to you, yeah, go ahead. Um, before I started your course, I knew I wasn't happy about the way the world is, but I didn't know what to do or like what that would look like for me. But you've definitely educated me, not just like textbook education, but you've educated my mindset yeah. and like how I can do things and how I can get involved and how it's not just a man's world and like you have to be from a certain background to be able to get involved and bring about change and you can you can do it so thank you and you're definitely an activist well thank you very much then I think you know I've achieved uh, I really achieved my life goal because well you know why do you get into um, academia but why do you get into teaching and uh, you know when I was doing my PhD endless hours of eyelash burn just reading was uh i i never realized that actually you know the, there was this power there to um hopefully have um given you some uh some knowledge and some uh encouragement to to people which i think um are not only beautiful human beings but really powerful women that will change the world so i with this, um, I'd like to um, go in into asking you a little bit more about your other uh, work that you've been involved with, which I think is very important. And, and for what I know, and we've had the chance to talk uh, before, it, it probably is some work that has really changed your perspective of things or maybe even uh, made you become more um, uh, aware of your own uh, privilege in terms of where you are sitting now where other people are sitting and your own capacity and and to some extent maybe your own identity so um tell us a little bit more about the work with the syrian war victim association and and how uh, this took you um to actually um uh, do more work on the ground so uh delara please if you can tell us um so what we did with the Syrian War Victims Association was um, we started off by researching about the massacres and researching about, first researching about, um, so we went on Syrian Network for Human Rights and looking at their reports and what the main issues were, like the main human rights issues were. And then we found that massacres, gender violence, so like sexual violence, sexual assault and murders were the reoccurring and illegal imprisonment were the main recurring issues so we decided that we will do our own legal research on this and educate ourselves and um following from that we were um so the firm we were with um trained us we were training using protocols on how to take witness statements what to what certain questions to ask for depending on the crime um and but this was before our international law module so we were very very fresh to this so just like finding about the OHCHR, the conventions, the Geneva Conventions, um, and all that kind of stuff. And then um, this was all very eye-opening because the Syrian Network for Human Rights are doing an amazing job in reporting and documenting what goes on out there in Syria and the Syrian conflict. So just researching and reading about it, that was eye-opening but going out there to take witness statements it was me and Jay we were both very scared because it was we were like we're too new to this we're not prepared enough but I don't think anyone any of us were actually prepared until you get there and you start doing something um so yeah we'd have to sit for like eight to nine hours at least a day for four days in very heat like very hot um offices um and you don't have to ask these people who've never met you to share their trauma and their experience 
and to be able to do this you can't be you have to remain professional but it's not just professionalism you need to be able to create a bond where you can speak with these people and for them to open up and have to relive that trauma and but trying to communicate this through and not getting lost in translation that was quite difficult um and then just hearing those people's stories and how they made it here was great was very eye-opening and transformative for me um what's problematic for me is that the people that i met they didn't they've had people come up to them before like firms come up to them before asking saying oh we're gonna get you help we're gonna bring justice to you and it's like these people i'm not here for justice yes justice yeah for them i feel like what justice is a western concept because what these people need is money, money to be able to go back to the way they were living before or be able to create a new life for themselves where they're safe. Um, so that was very new to me because I thought this is the law, people should follow the law, everyone should be concerned about the law and everyone should be concerned about human rights, but that's not the case. Some people are really just out here fighting for their survival. So that reminded me of that's a privilege because I don't need to worry about my survival as much. I can. I know that I'm secure enough that I can worry about other people's rights and ensure that the law is in place and that's not a privilege that everyone has. Yeah, very interesting, very important reflections. Um, Jalen, tell us a little bit about um, how that work impacted you or what, what it meant for you. Um, so when I went to Turkey, um, I see like in my town in Turkey, um, there are a lot of Syrians as well. Um, but I would just see them as like, oh, just on the street. And like m my family there would just like be like, oh, they're just people, on the just homeless people. But I didn't know the stories that they actually went through until last year when I took witness statements of the Syrian victims. And yeah, they don't want to be in Turkey. They don't want to live there, but that's their only option. And um, that was actually an eye opener for me as well. Like just seeing this, they don't, the Syrians, um, they're victims and they had to leave their own country because of um, conflict going on there and um, them having to leave their own country wasn't up to them and they're, they're, the way they're being treated in Turkey is they're not being treated in good conditions either so there's just a lot of inequalities and injustices and, and uh, when we were taking the witness statements like every night we were just talking about what we were like what we took witness statements of and it was just um, that you just feel very low but then at the same time when you're like discussing it and like what you're doing for it it just boosts your energy back and you're just like you want to do more and that's like how we were just moving forward and always just carrying on what we were doing I mean I I, I have to say um I, I mean, I, I, I actually can't believe that you did this work because uh, it's very intense. I myself, I mean, I've done interviews in the field, you know, as part of research missions and, and in some difficult places, but never in a context as difficult as the one that you were interviewing people in. So, yeah, it's amazing that actually you, you sort of did this work. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I think it really shows, speaks to your, um, sort of your uh, courage and your bravery and your braveness and your integrity, you know, as, as people. Um, so I just, uh, I just wanted to, to say that. I mean, I, I wanted to ask um, sort of a question. I mean, Olga had at the beginning um, sort of referred to the fact that you are both um, British born Londoners and and uh, and it's true. I don't know if we've had that many actual Londoners, <laughs> like people born in London <laughs> or in the UK, on on this podcast. So, I mean, a question I have for you is is really um, about because you're both not, uh, I'd say, you're both sort of maybe non-white sort of Londoners. And I have a question, I guess, to you about uh, systemic prejudice and bias. You know, sort of being. Uh, sort of activists, women, uh, women of color, um, you know, growing up and living in the UK today. Uh, I mean, how, what is, what's your view? I mean, how you're activists and we're talking about corporate accountability, but you know, one, 
we've often raised the question of, well, how do we, how do we address stuff like systemic bias and prejudice even within this work? You know, and, and I'm wondering if you have any suggestions or ideas or thoughts, you know, as, as, to, how, as to how we can better do that and engage with that uh, agenda. I think the main issue is the UK has a problem of believing that they're innocent. Um, the concept that the USA is bad and that's where everything's going on, but we're perfectly fine here. We haven't had a whole history of colonialism and murdering millions of people and taking their land. Um, so I think it starts off with education. I think education is very important for me. Um, and from starting from primary school up to university, the true history should be taught. Um, what the UK has done, um, how it's impacted people. What's interesting is, this might be kind of, oh, I'm going to say it anyways. So the Holocaust is talking about, spoken about a lot, but with the Uyghur Muslims right now, um, it's, it was released yesterday that the total number of deaths have passed the Holocaust. And it's a shame that no one, not no one, but it's not really spoken about. Um, so that's one issue. So I think education, it, I think the British history systems and like history classes and all kinds of education need to talk about it. And so we've had this whole Black Lives Matter um, period, I'd say, because I feel like now it's kind of dying down, but that's only because it's not spoken about as much in media, but it's still going on. A lot of people are still doing work. Companies are changing their um, employment system, I guess. And change that people are having more dialogue on what being being more ethical and equal would look like for them as a company. Um, and with systemic bias, I think corporate accountability is quite important because, especially with AI, um, the police when the police are using AI, they need to be careful with the systems that they're using because these artificial intelligence technologies, where they're using automated decision-making systems, they have bias. And these biased decisions have a human real life impact when you're um, taking in a suspect merely because of what a system has said and you're not recognizing that bias, that is very dangerous. So companies and corporate corporations need to be accountable when they are designing and outsourcing these technologies and the people who are using it, if that be, the justice system because courts are now introducing this or that be the policing system they need to be they need to be aware of this problem um, because the data that's been fed into these systems is biased and is discriminatory because the world we live in is biased so the outcome that it's going to have is going to be unfair most times and um, so the people who are using it really need to be careful when using these systems and recognize that we need to, as a country, we need to recognize the bias that we have and the history of bias and inequality that we have. And then from there, we can build a platform to be able to better ourselves in the coming future. I, I totally, AI, of course, being artificial intelligence. So, and, and that's mm -hmm. such an important point. So thanks, thanks for raising that. Um, and Jalen, Jalen, I'm, I'm going to point this question to you. So. Uh, building on what Delara has said, specifically in this area of work, you know, business and human rights, corporate accountability, do you see it as an equal access space? You know, do you feel that, you know, are there, is there a sy systemic bias within this space? Um, I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, if you don't think it is an equal access space or if you do and, and what change you'd like to see to ensure that that's addressed. Do you mean specifically with relation to the UK? Yeah, so the UK or even in the work more broadly, um, sort of in corporate accountability, business and human rights or, mm. yeah, either. Um, I've done a research on um, the illegal settlements in Israel and um, I realised that a lot of the companies involved in um, the settlements were um, UK companies. And not, none of these companies were found accountable. And yeah, I do agree with Delara. There is a bias. Uh, there is inequality. Delara, do you, did you want to add anything? Like particularly, you were sort of shaking your head when I said within this area of work in this space. It's, I mean, do you, do you have views? Is there, is there sort of equal? Do you feel like there's a systemic bias of, I guess, people who do this work, people who have a voice in this work, people who are? Um, I would say... I think human rights 
in not industry but the work of human rights it's more um, diverse compared to other sectors and other industries um, but it's still the access can be difficult because the human rights um, sector it's it doesn't pay well and unless you come from a background where you can support yourself um, people might not want to come into this area like it's for some people it can be a sacrifice um, so there is that issue of having access to that to the sector but um, employment wise I feel like you don't need a Russell group education or you don't need to have certain trainings or skills I feel like in that sense the human rights industry is more open okay good so uh, we've been talking about some of these uh, important issues that uh, are relevant now and they're are very urgent such as uh, you know addressing the intrinsic inequality that we still have in our society and and now more and more these inequalities uh, actually spread into the way we organize uh, we're, we're organizing our society through technology through processes and systems through uh, as well as you've seen in the work in Syria, closing our borders and uh, closing our eyes to the suffering of others um, uh, that are in very um, you know, uh, urgent situations that, that need our attention and our protection. But well, my question specifically to both of you, and maybe Jalen, if you can um, go first, is to what do you think uh, specifically the challenges of your generation, the human rights challenges of your generation? generation that really demand are going to demand your your attention and your work i think as delara said earlier like people just think about how to make money today and um with human rights abuses they just um they mention it they like uh, acknowledge it but they don't do they don't take anything further um i think um that like these abuses, okay, we've got like a legal system that should hold people accountable. We've got the United Nations, we've got the courts, but um, like young people need to make themselves aware of this and they need to educate themselves, as I said earlier as well, um, that this is happening and we need to do something because if we don't, the younger generations wouldn't as well and it's getting worse it's not getting better but the more we like knowledge people on it and the more we um you know actively discuss this with everyone the better um adding on to what jay was just Jaden was just saying um i feel what we have now is these classifications of generations so we have the baby movers generation x generation y and what often happens is we're alienated but our, i feel like our generation has been alienated we are we're being called as the lazy generation the generation who would rather buy avocados than to buy a house um i think that needs to stop because this is the world that we have been handed down this is we are trying our best and i think we need to cooperate the older generations need to cooperate with us and allow us to express that we are involved in this and express our thoughts on what's going on and bring us into those discussions um, like with rights and with politics and the laws that are being brought in. Our voice needs to be heard because you, like your generation won't be here for much longer. It's the future generations that are going to continue the livelihood of our society and for it to be better than what it has been because we can't say that it's been great that would be a lie that would be ignorant we need to bring we need space that's I think we need space in those discussions and um, for me I'd say one of the main human rights issues facing us right now is data and how data is being used how it's being processed and um, technology so how technology is also being used because we don't have a human being who's now um, who we can direct to and say, you're the one that caused this human rights issue, this conflict and this murder, or um, where um, chemical weapons are being used or drones are being used. You can't directly um, point out the person who's using it. So I think corporations come into this. With technology, corporations have far more power 
So now there's a secret handshake between corporations and the government. There's that issue. And then there's the issue of using technology in war. And then there's the use of technology in everyday life through where um, people are not being hired because of the decision of an AI system or people are not being given insurance or giving loan, being given loans based off a decision on that area or of your information being classified into groups. So I feel like technology and data is a very alarming issue and it's not as spoken about as it should be. Right. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you, you need the space and you, you need the voice. And I think one very um, important uh, characteristic of the, your generation of the people that I know and the, which are the people who I teach and the, who I have the privilege to be with is that actually you do have a voice and you use it. And uh, it, I think it's important as well that you use it out of your own peer circle as well. So you use it to talk to us and to talk to um, uh, younger people, not just to, it, you know, a way to say it's like your own peer circle, which is, for example, your Instagram followers, etc. No, it has to be a much wider voice. And in this, um, I know you both have sisters. I know you both have little sisters, right? So um, do you feel a sense of responsibility towards them as well to, to empower them, to tell them what the world is and, and how they should, you know, uh, uh, maybe think of themselves in this world? Delara, you're shaking. Oh, Jalen, Jalen, go ahead. Definitely. Um, my sister, like, she used to drink dairy milk. I got her to start drinking oat milk, for instance. Um, I, didn't, I didn't do it myself at the beginning until I started educating myself as well. Like, last year of uni and second year of uni, I could say was, like, the most eye-opening for me. Um, I became pescatarian because it's, it's the more you educate yourself. And I think social media plays a big part. Like, I do believe that um, social media has taught me to become more um, of an activist, if I could say. And um, some people it affects positively, some people it doesn't. But to me, I could definitely say that it has impacted me in a positive way, that in the sense that I have educated other people and um, I do see an impact, like a difference in other people's behaviour. Great, Delara, you were you were uh, shaking your head when I was talking about little sisters. Um, my youngest sister, well, the one my sister, I've got a lot of siblings, so the one younger than me, she's a bit harder to get through to. But my youngest sister, who's thirteen, um, so when the Black Lives Matter protest first started, she was very eager to come with me, um, but I was quite worried. So um, we, me, I always have discussions with my sister. We always talk about what's going on in the world, how we can help. And I always try to ensure that she feels like she can do something about it and that she's not made to feel like she's marginalised or you're too young to know about this, you're too young to talk about this, which is what happened to us when we were younger. Um, I would rather have open conversations with her and treat her with respect. And she, I expect her to do the same with me. Um, but it's, it was great to know that within um, our area in Hackney, they did protest for Black Lives Matter, so she was able to join through that. And then with the Extinction Rebellion, her own classmates, they did a protest. So they did a work, walkout. That was, I, when I heard that, that I was quite amazed and I was very happy to know that the generations that are going to come, they are active from now. Um, so yeah. I was really, really happy about that. Okay, so um, yeah, this is very interesting. The the way you uh, perceive the what are the new challenges and what's your role in it. So what what are we overlooking? What's uh, what's my generation? What, what do you need to hear from us? What do you? How are we in a way letting you down by not uh, communicating or not uh, uh, listening? Um, like I said, I think it's very important. Like you not have the power right now, but it's. I'm very grateful. So I'm grateful for platforms like this. So I'm grateful that you've allowed us, someone from a younger generation, come in and talk and share our voice. And I think that needs to continue happening. Young people need to be allowed to be 
in the same room as legislators, in the same room as politicians, in the same room as policymakers or think tanks. And um, we might not have the same experience you have, but our outlook is different to yours because we've lived from a different generation. We're the digital generation. So our, if we are given the opportunity to and allowed and given a seat at the table, I think that would be a great start. That's great. I have to say that I have an Instagram account because of you. I remember I remember the first day um, or oh, the second day of class or something, which uh, um, one of you said um, something like, uh, yeah, so can I follow you? Are you in social media? Can I follow you? And I was so proud. I was like, yes, I'm on Twitter. And one of you said, oh, no, I, I don't have Twitter. I don't do Twitter. I do Instagram. And I'm like, now that I finally learned how to use one of these, now it's the wrong one. And so I do have an Instagram, uh, the BHRA, our research group, the Business Human Rights and the Environment has an Instagram account, which um, I need uh, some help managing, obviously. If anybody goes to it now, they will see that it, it, it definitely needs a bit of um, new blood and energy. So... Um, so my last uh, question, just to finish, is uh, what's next? What's next for you? I know that, um, Delara, I know that you are uh, going to go on into postgraduate studies. You're going to do a master's uh, in the fall with the, uh, you've been awarded a scholarship uh, following your brilliant uh, first uh, class degree with, uh, with this, a prize as well as uh, um, uh, the Sarah Greer um, prize for the contribution to the school. And um, Jayla and I know that uh, you've started volunteering at Nomos and I know that you're going to continue working with us at the BHRE as well as the, as the uh, a research associate to the team and uh, uh, taking a year off to try to uh, to um, uh, find as well the path you know, of what you want to do. But uh, uh, well, how do you see the coming years? How do you see your future? Especially because you are the the first generation that's going to enter the labor market right in the middle of a global pandemic. So uh, are you hopeful? Are you um, cautiously optimistic, pessimistic? Um, uh, Jalen? Well, I think I've only got one word to describe it and that is uncertain. <laughs> uncertain, but hopeful. I feel like um, these, this generation um, we've got, uh, we've got we're gonna have a lot of ups and downs but at the end of the day like we will be written in history books we're going to be like um very strong and we'll be telling our kids about these um are you going to be telling your kids about this the crazy definitely. covid years definitely i think <clears throat> i think it's strange because for sorry that's my because I'm just worrying. <laughs> it's very worrying. Um, I mean, the industry, like the sector I want to go into as a barrister, um, it's difficult as it is. So I'm just wondering how much more difficult it's going to be now. And um, there may be possible changes to the way the world is going to operate from now on because we recognize that we can use technology in different ways. Um, I'm, I like human interaction. I like being in the same space as human beings. So this technology, it's quite difficult for me. So I'm worried about the way employment and our daily lives are going to be because a pandemic has changed the whole world order. So I'm kind of worried, but I'm trying to remain hopeful. And um, if anything, the pandemic has made me realise that our generation is often what well, always for a while we've been on the receiving end like um people older than us have been making policies that impact us in much um bigger ways than previous generations so the changes and the laws that are being brought in they have longer con like bigger consequences that are going to affect us for a much longer time especially as we can see by the climate crisis where governments are still trying to deny it or and where they and they are cooperating with corporations that are impacting the livelihood of our, like of our being for money and it's just it's very frustrating 
Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to remain hopeful and that's why we're in this area. That's why we're activists. That's why I will do my best to not just sit here and receive everything. Um, I will use my voice. I will use my power. I will use my connections and I will try and hope that everyone else will do the same. Okay, well, I, I am hopeful because I know that, you know, I, you and your um, uh, classmates this year are really, truly amazing, inspiring people. And I know if the, if the future is in your hands, then I'm very hopeful. So I uh, just, uh, just wanted to say that this has been fantastic, that uh, we, we have been absolutely privileged to have you to have uh, Jalen Akbas and Dilara Alton, both uh, first-class uh, law graduates at uh, Greenwich, but activists, amazing women, amazing uh, uh, human beings. And uh, we hopefully get some help with promoting in Instagram and <laughs> through all our <laughs> through all our uh, channels that you are going to help me <laughs> uh, um, remote at so um thank you very much jaylen thank you for having us thank you for uh, being here and for being such a wonderful students yep thanks a lot thank you so much thanks for inviting us and allowing us to share our thoughts and um, thank you for listening yeah. goodbye bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.